This is God's Word from 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, not Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, good morning. Well, this, uh, this passage is pretty self-explanatory, so <laughs> I think I'll just close in prayer. We'll go home. <laughs> uh, I like the scene from my big fat Greek wedding. Mom and daughter are talking. My dad is so stubborn. What he says goes. The man's the head of the house. Let me tell you something, Tula. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants. (laughs) I don't see any men clapping. What's the deal? (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, since the beginning of time, there's been that tension, right? Who's in charge between men and women? You know, it was declared that this was going to be an ongoing issue way back in Genesis after the fall where God in Genesis 3.16 said this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Commentators have made very clear that where those words that are used, your desire shall be for your husband, really means there'll be a part of you that will want to control the relationship as a woman. But he must rule over you, and therefore there is built into society and into our relationships between men and women this tension, this battle for control. It's true in many, if not all, marriages to some degree. But what if this tension spills over into the church? What should we do about it? And to expand the question a little bit, how should the gospel impact the way we relate as men and as women in the church? How can we live in the church as men and women in a way that truly enhances the gospel and not take away from the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I think our passage today will help us see how to live as believing men and believing women in a way where we can both flourish and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, as we approach this difficult passage, I pray your spirit will bring clarity And that most of all, we might walk out of here with your word having changed us. 
and help us understand how we as men and as women can best live in a way to enhance the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to begin right up front and say that, you know, there's, there's a difficulty, a tension in the church at large about the place of women in ministry. And this passage is at the center of that. It's kind of a continuum. At one end is, are those who believe that, well, women should not speak in church. They should be completely quiet. They should wear head coverings, etc. And so there are churches like that. There are others at the other end of the continuum who say, well, there is no difference. Women can be elders. Women can be senior pastors. They, have, they can be, do anything in the church. Well, here at Cole, we have six women pastors on staff. We are really towards this end. I mean, we, we fully believe that we want women to use the fullness of their gifts in every way. We believe that God has blessed them with every gift. And I love working on staff with six pastors who are women because they influence me, they influence the direction of the church in all kinds of wonderful ways. We have women prayers Sunday morning, like Laura just led us in prayer in a wonderful way. Women scripture readers, women, a woman worship leader, Adrienne. Women can do anything at Cole, according to our policy, except be elders and the primary shepherd of our growth groups, which we see as house churches. We believe women have all the gifts and they need to use them fully. But we have seen in scripture and partly from this passage, but also from the general teaching of Scripture, that elders, the pattern over and over again is that elders are only men, and that Jesus, for example, his 12 closest disciples were all men. You know, Jesus and Paul, it's, it's clear that men were in only those positions of leadership. But um, we as a church would much rather, and we describe this in our policy statement about women in ministry. It's in the back wall. I encourage you to pick one up if you have questions and want to read more about what the elders have concluded about women in ministry. But it says in there, we would rather err on the side of grace. In other words, we would rather err in giving women freedom to use their gifts than having stifled them in some way from being all that God wants them to be. So Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. There was a lot of confusion in the church in Ephesus about men and women, about their roles, about power. And it was coming out of this culture to a large degree, this culture that surrounded them. And it was a very confusing culture. Remember in Ephesus, the center of their worship, they had many gods they worshipped, but primarily their center was the cult of Artemis. Now, this cult of Artemis, according to legend, was started by Amazon women, warrior women who came down from Eastern Europe and began this worship of Artemis. The cult of Artemis was governed and led by priestesses. So you have a woman deity, you have women priestesses running the show. And that was a big part of the culture in Ephesus. 
But at the same time, there's a lot of confusion because in this same cult, there were many prostitutes, female prostitutes, that men would come sleep with to gain fertility. And so women were being treated as objects. And in the Roman Empire in general, women had very, very few rights. They couldn't vote. They, they couldn't testify in a court of law. There were so many things that they could not do because they, in many ways, were treated as second-class citizens. So there's confusion in the whole culture. Then you get to the New Testament and you get to the Jesus and Paul and you see them bringing into the midst of this culture uh, a real exaltation of women, lifting women to new heights far above the culture. Jesus had women among the disciples who followed him around. In fact, they were the breadwinners, <laughs> the ones who financially supported his ministry and his disciples as they traveled around. Jesus constantly exalted women. Paul mentions women apostles, women deacons, women prophets, women teachers. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 that women were speaking out in a good way in the church gatherings. You see, the New Testament clearly puts women in a place far above the surrounding culture. Well, in our day, I think our confusion culturally about men and women in their roles is much like it was in Ephesus. Some of us grew up during the 1950s, you know, when, when the roles be, uh, between men and women seemed pretty clear. You've got Leave it to Beaver and, and you've got uh, June and Ward Cleaver and, you know, he's the breadwinner. She had the privilege of staying home and not having to go to work. That was considered a wonderful privilege. But then the sexual revolution of the 1960s came, the rise of feminism. And all of that changed, brought more confusion, and brought also some needed correctives and some needed appreciation of women. But it also brought tremendous disruption. So that for many Christians today, we live in this culture that's all confused, and then we struggle with, okay, well, what does all this mean for us as men and women in the church today? How should we function together as men and women in the church? Well, I do think this passage can help us greatly and change our thinking. But let me, let me give two cautions before we dig into this passage together. Number one, I think it's important that you ask yourself, especially if you're really passionate and, uh, you know, getting worked up about this. This is a big deal for you. Ask yourself, is, is my passion, is my understanding, my point of view, shaped by the Scriptures? Or is it shaped by my experience or my culture? And I'd encourage you to be open to what God wants to say to you through this passage. And number two, caution, just note that God's desire for both men and women is the flourishing of both men and women, that his way always leads to the greatest impact and the greatest fulfillment as men and women. So let's look at this passage together. How do we become men and women of true 
influence in how we relate in our culture, in our churches, and together. Well, it begins this way in verse 8. First, he speaks to men, and he only gives one verse to men. I'm struck that, you know, men aren't very good at multitasking. We can't take in a lot. So there's several verses to the women, but only one to the men. And he says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, my translation, NIV translation, I think is confusing because it doesn't begin with the word therefore. In the Greek, that's, that begins this sentence, therefore, which means it refers back to what Paul has been saying before. That's very important here to understand that because what is he referring back to? He's referring back to what he just said about the importance of the gospel, that God wants everyone, man and woman, to be saved. There's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. And God desires all men to be saved. And so what's important is that the gospel go forth in its fullest. Therefore, he says these words Men, if you are going to help the gospel go forward, here's some things you need to think about and focus on. Women, likewise, it says in verse 9, if you are going to help the gospel go forward, here's some things you need to think about. It appears as he addresses men that there were two problems, two problem areas where men were functioning in a way that was hurting the gospel. The first one, where he says, lifting holy hands, I think it's a challenge to men because they weren't living holy lives. And they were harming the gospel because they were not living holy lives. Now remember, Ephesus was a very corrupt culture. It was very sexualized. And the Christians were confused by this and were apparently some of them sleeping with some of the prostitutes, getting into the culture And one thing I've noticed about men as men's pastor, working with men, you know, we're pretty good at compartmentalizing. What we tend to do is we we can have an area we're struggling with, an area of lust perhaps, an area of pornography, of alcoholism, of some other addiction, an area of anger or abusiveness, fantasy, thought life, whatever it might be. And, and we, we struggle with it, but we kind of privatize that. And yet, in the rest of our life, we can be involved in ministry. We can serve in the church. We can have this great job going where we're successful in the job. Paul says, no, that's not okay, man. Don't compartmentalize. If you have an area of your life that is betraying your holiness, that is taking you away from being able to lift up clean, holy hands to God, then you need to deal with it. That harms the gospel. You need to keep your hands clean. Or we might say, keep your noses clean. Men, you'll have the greatest impact for the gospel if you deal with those secret sins, if you get help, if you stop being a hypocrite, Because those things do take away from the gospel. You may think it affects no one else. You may think it's private. You may think it doesn't cause problems. It does, and it harms the gospel, and it harms you. We've seen way too many who are pastors, leaders, elders, etc., not just elsewhere out there, but here at Cole, 
who have gotten into trouble because they've harbored these secret sins, this secret life. And I just challenge you men, deal with it so you can lift up holy hands. The second area apparently that men were causing problems in the church that was taken away from their ability to enhance the gospel is that they were fighting. That's what he says, anger and disputing. It's a common thing, I think, for men. And if you read the book of 1 Timothy, you see that there was a lot of disputing going on. There was arguing about speculations about the Old Testament, about the law. There were arguments about genealogies and men were getting caught up in all these arguing kind of discussions. One thing I've noticed about us men is that we tend to be combative. And ever since the fall, remember what was cursed for men. The ground was cursed and so life is a battle for us. Life's frustrating. And so we struggle against it. As men, life's a battle, life's a war, and so we men tend to fall into the attitude that, well, if I just exert enough power, enough strength, as a man, maybe I can overcome this, maybe I can get things done this way. And in a corrupt culture like there was in Ephesus, or like there is today that we have to deal with, we want to take on the culture, join the culture wars, we want to fight for the truth. We want to fight the false teachers or heresy or we want to take and influence others through arguing, disputing, or we get caught up in little details of theology or speculations and Paul says that doesn't help. I've seen it in the church. I've served in five churches. I've seen it in every church where men get an agenda and they want to push their agenda and they think that by exerting more power, We can get things done. I can convince people. I can control things. And Paul says, no, that harms the gospel. It is interesting to me back in verse 18 where Paul challenges Timothy in in chapter 1, by the way. Verse 18, he says, By these, by these prophecies, etc., you may wage the good warfare, is my translation, or fight the good fight. In other words, we are called as men to fight the fight. But we've got to fight the good fight, the right fight, in the right way. Should we jump in and fight the culture wars, join the moral majority? That's kind of passe. But that kind of idea that we've got to fight for our culture and so we'll do that. No, Paul challenges them and says, no, that's not going to help the gospel to fight and to argue In fact, what he's saying in this verse is that, men, you are to fight the good fight, but your greatest weapons are holiness, a righteous lifestyle, giving your life more and more to God, surrendering to Him as we've been singing about all morning, and prayer. Prayer is powerful. It releases the power of God into the situation in which you're dealing, whatever you're dealing with. But arguing doesn't, doesn't further the kingdom of God. A number of you have heard my story of my relationship with my own dad where I came to Christ when I was 17 and he's an attorney and is good at arguing. And so we began arguing and we argued about creation evolution. We argued about the miracles of the Bible. We argued about a whole number of things 
it didn't get anywhere. It just created more anger and struggle and difficulty in our relationship. And I realized, you know what? That's wrong. The important thing is not those peripheral things. It's Jesus. So I started arguing with him about Jesus. (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, that didn't get very far either. And God just spoke to my heart and said, "You you, you need to step back, grow in Christ, trust me, and pray for your dad and pray. And I prayed for well over 20 years until when my dad was 72 years old, he finally committed his life to Christ. See, men, our our power is in prayer. We're called to impact the world for Christ, to fight the good fight, but our weapons are, he gives a couple more at the end of verse 7. He just mentioned this, Paul did. He said, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I think our weapons, men, are faith, really trusting God to work. Truth, simply stating the truth and letting it go, not arguing about it. Holiness, as we deal with those sins in our lives, the power of God is released as the Spirit takes control of our lives. And then prayer. Prayer, seeking God to work, realizing it's His working that's important, not ours. That's where the power is displayed. So he says, stop fighting. Get on your knees and pray. I I love the fact that there's many men here in our church who are prayer warriors who pray every Tuesday morning. A group gets together from our men's ministry and the men in our Thursday morning group, we spend a lot of time praying and men are praying in all kinds of ways, Saturday evening and a lot of, a, a lot of places. I just encourage you men to keep praying. And if you're not much of a prayer, begin praying. It's where the power of God is released. I appreciate this song by Petra. Anybody listen to Petra, the old 80s Christian band? One of their songs says this, Out on your own with your own self-reliance, you've got no one to watch your back. You find yourself caught with no strong alliance, you've been left open for attack. Get on your knees and fight like a man. You'll pull down strongholds if you just believe you can. Your enemy will tuck his tail and flee. Get on your knees and fight like a man. So that's the challenge to men. What about to women? How can women live out the gospel in a way that truly enhances the gospel and doesn't take away from it? Well, it begins again with likewise. It's about the gospel here. Here's how you can have the greatest influence, ladies, for the gospel. Helping God call men and women to himself because he desires all to be saved. Well, There are two problem areas for women, too, just like there were for men, apparently. He begins by challenging women about how they dress, their outward adornment. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 to remind you. Likewise, also, that that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and goals or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, that is, with good works. Outward adornment. 
Someone commented and said, I heard Phyllis Diller say that she spent three hours in a beauty shop. And that was just for the estimate. (laughs) We laugh at that, but you know, women do spend a lot of time often on how they look, how they dress. It's challenging because prostitutes in the days of Ephesus and in those days and even today dressed very provocatively to attract the attention of and arouse men. Ads of all kinds today, television ads, etc. They use provocatively dressed, sexualized women to sell everything from cars to hamburgers and everything in between. Why do they do that? Because they know something. (laughs) You see, because God made men to respond visually, He designed us that way. He created us that way. And they know, these ad makers know, that if you arouse a man sexually, you have a certain amount of power over him. Remember the story in the Bible of King Herod. He has Salome come and dance in this feast he's having. He's been drinking. It's this big feast. And Herodias is there, his wife. And, and uh, Herod just is so overtaken and aroused by this dance. He says, oh, up, you can have anything. Ask for anything up to half my kingdom. And Herodias uses that to get the head of John the Baptist, her enemy. You see, there's power there. There's power. And I think women have known that since the beginning of time. If we dress in certain ways, we can arouse and control men to a certain degree. Women have used outward adornment, provocative dress, and so forth to do so. It's very sad to me as I watch young women, teenagers, and even elementary school young women dressing in provocative ways in seeking the wrong kind of attention. They, they feel that power, right? That I'm getting attention, I'm getting attention, but I don't know if they understand it or if they're just simply naive or if they're just falling into the culture, but folks, we need to help our women understand how dangerous that is. It does get attention, but it's the wrong kind of attention. We need to help women understand the kind of power they have over men. Now, the Muslims have dealt with this issue by how? By completely covering up women so that there's nothing in public, so that there's nothing visual there to avoid the temptation of men. I'm certainly not advocating that. I don't think Paul is advocating that. But God does want us to look at our hearts, and he wants women to look at their hearts. Paul is saying to women, I believe, how much time do you spend on outward adornment to get the attention of others, either men or women? And I think Paul is saying, let me challenge you that you'll do far more for yourself and for the gospel if you don't use outward adornment and focus on trying to get attention that way. But instead, he says, use your time, your energy to do good works. He says, adorn yourself, dress yourself with good works. What does he mean by this? Well, again, it's the question, what kind of attention are you seeking, women? 
If you put your energy into loving others, into sharing God's love, caring for the hurting, caring for the needy, caring for the poor, etc., you'll draw attention not to yourself, but to the gospel, to the kingdom of God, to Jesus. And that's what we need to focus on. Women, you have tremendous power. And Paul is saying, use that power for the gospel, not for yourself. The second problem area, apparently in this passage, is that there's a problem with usurping authority. Let me read verses 11 and following. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Let me stop there. That word exercise authority, scholars have studied that at length, and it, it's not just talking about leading. It, it more accurately is talking about usurping authority, domineering over, taking control. And Paul says, I don't allow a woman to take that kind of a t- control in the church over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It appears that women in the Ephesian church, from what Paul says here, were imitating the women in the Artemis cults. They were taking control, dominating church meetings, basically taking over. Now, I think many of these women were probably doing this for the right reason. Uh, They were seeing that there were false teachers. They were seeing the men over there fighting and arguing over about little theological details that don't really matter. And they're thinking, there's widows that need help. There's all this stuff that needs to be done in the church, and the men aren't doing it. So they began to step up and take control. But Paul suggests that you are not helping the gospel when you do that. And you are in danger of falling into the deceit that Eve fell into when she was confused about the truth. She got into trouble. Don't do this, Paul says. It harms the church. Don't usurp authority. Don't step into the vacuum, even if there is one. Don't take control. Now, I know this raises a lot of questions, and I'm not going to answer them all. Unfortunately, we don't have time. But one question is, is Paul saying that all women are more easily deceived than men are? Well, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if he thinks that. I don't think that's the main point here. He does appeal to the priority of creation, and that's a biblical principle that what is created first has responsibility over what comes later. And I think he is saying by that from creation, God's creation, that by the priority of men being created first, they were given the responsibility over creation primary to rule with woman over creation. And so Paul is saying, don't take that away, women. Don't take it away. Instead, he says, you will have much greater impact for the gospel if you focus on two things. Two things I see him saying here. Number one, learning all you can about God and about his word. 
And secondly, living a godly life. Why do I say that? Well, notice what his commandment is in verse 11. Let a woman learn. Now, I understand he gives a lot of descriptives of that, quietly, submissively, silently, etc. But I think his point is this. Women, in a culture where women were not allowed to learn very much at all, he's saying, women, learn all you can about God and about the Scriptures. Dig into them. That will help protect you against the deceit that Eve fell into and it will give you tremendous influence in the church in all kinds of ways. So women, learn all you can. Now I'm so encouraged. I, it's, it hardly needs to be said in our church here because you women are so good at learning and digging into the scriptures. Our women's Bible studies are so well attended and BSF in our community and precepts and other Bible studies, etc. I think it's wonderful. I just want to encourage you. That is something God encourages you to do, women. It gives you a greater influence in our church and in our culture as you understand truth and dig into it and let it change your life. Bravo to you. And then the second encouragement is to live a godly life. I think that's the point of verse 15. She will be saved. Now, he uses the word saved, and I, I understand that's a confusing word. But understand, he's not talking about eternal salvation. The word is often used simply to be rescued or delivered. And I think he's saying this. You'll be delivered or rescued from many of the effects of the fall. Remember the curse, women? You'll have pain in childbirth. You'll struggle a lot. There'll be frustration for you. He says a lot of that frustration can be alleviated if you focus on living a godly life, a life of faith, trusting God more, love, loving God and loving others, holiness, just as he exhorted men. Learn to deal with those areas of your life and live a holy life and learn to exhibit self-control. And as you grow in godliness as a woman, your influence in the church and in the community in this world will grow and grow and grow. In all kinds of ways, in your homes, in your family, and on and on. It's still true. Uh, I like this quote from Abraham Lincoln, his famous quote about his own mother, All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. She died when he was just a boy, but the impress she made upon his life influenced him throughout his career. Women, you have tremendous influence, especially as you live a godly life in your homes, but way beyond your homes as well. So men, you want to be a man of true influence. You want to fight the good fight to truly impact this crazy world that's seems to be just going in a downward slide morally. Well, stop fighting with one another. Stop arguing about theological details and start praying. Deal with those sinful areas of your life. Get help if you need to and pray. Learn to be a man of prayer. I've learned in the last few years the most important thing I do as a pastor is pray. It releases the power of God. That's huge part of my ministry now because I, I used to think it depended on me. It doesn't. It's him. That's how we fight the good fight. And do you want to be a woman of true influence? 
impacting lives for the gospel, then please be modest. Be careful about what you wear. Don't attract that kind of attention. But instead, adorn your life with good works, loving others, caring for others. And again, so many women here are so good at that, bringing meals to the hurting and on and on. You're just helping hands ministry and all the things you do. That's wonderful. Keep it up. Grow in adorning your life with good works. Learn everything you can. Dig into the scriptures. Get to know God better and better and live a godly life. Learn to trust him more. Learn to love others more. And as we, we learn to express the life of Christ in us more and more as men and as women. The gospel is enhanced. People will be drawn to want to know Jesus through our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you made us how you wanted us, as men and as women, with the unique ways that you've created us to impact this world as we live out the image of God that we both carry. May we be men and women who are living out your image so that the gospel may go forth, so that people will know that Jesus is the one mediator that God has given that we might know the creator of the universe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.